Hello and welcome back to the How The Fuck podcast. This week I've got a very special guest, Gordana Stratenovic from Wakello. Gordana and her team have grown companies search traffic exponentially again and again from zero to up to a crazy 1.5 million visitors a month. At one point, her agency was producing 800 blog posts per month for their clients with 45 writers and editors. To get an operation like that up and running and producing high quality content, you need very thorough hiring processes, quality enablement documentation, templates to follow and a tech stack that supports you. In this episode, we learn the exact processes, documentations and tools you need in place to to build a quality content operation within your business that both supports your writers and your growth goals. Thank you so much for listening. As always, head over to thefuck.com, that's thfxck.com, to join our premium community. It's just £8 a month and you get access to the full library of SEO case studies to read through, which contains loads of actual extras, step-by-step guides, templates, and teardowns of strategies like this one. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm doing super amazing. Very excited. A little bit nervous, to be honest, but all good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. I'm super excited to have you on. I like follow you on LinkedIn, follow everyone in your team, and we'll see all the crazy stories, which is what we're about over here as well. Yeah. So what we're, what we're going to hear and talk about today is, is really like how to scale content production. And we hear a lot of these stories of like X to however much traffic every month, (laughs) like crazy, crazy stuff. And we do dig into it, how they do it, but you guys do it again and again and again. Like it's repeated with lots of different clients and to the point where like we've just discussed, you're you're creating 800 pages a month, like last year for different clients, like not all for one, but this is obviously wild. So looking forward to it. Yeah, it was crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's an operational crazy masterpiece of planning and everything, I imagine. It's a lot of planning. Yeah, it's a lot of uh, moving parts, a lot of tools, kind of everyone has to work on the same thing at the same time. And like, yeah, there's a lot of dependencies there, but not easy. Definitely not easy. You don't have to publish that much, by the way, but you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to dig into that. That's actually a good place yeah. to start. But whenever I publish a story like this, at least I get some comments like this. I imagine you do as well. Like, and I think it's the elephant in the room of like everyone saying, well, what about quality? How can you possibly publish a hundred, more than a hundred articles a month and it be reader friendly quality it be useful to the business it's not all about traffic yeah talk, can you talk to me about that does quality matter to your team like what is quality for you yeah I would I would love to and thank you for starting with that because it's honestly it's one of the comments that we get kind of every single day to be honest like no you can't have quality at a scale but the thing mm-hmm. for me is you know and my team not just me of course we are all like huge nerds. You know, we all studied English. We all love literature and language. And for us, it's not, you know, it doesn't matter how much we publish if it's not good content. So that is our primary concern. And I think, you know, it's easy to think that if you publish a lot, it, it must be bad, right? Like there's no way to do any type of QA or or just produce so much content and have it be good. But it is actually possible and it is actually kind of the number one thing that we think about whenever we start a new project or want to scale an existing project. How can we scale this, but also keep the level of quality the same, if not even better, as we have when we were publishing, you know, two or 20 pages a month. So quality is definitely number one thing that we 
always start with and we will always end with because we don't just, if it's not good, we're not going to publish it. It's not easy, but it's definitely possible. And I honestly think anyone can do it. You know, if you're interested in scaling your content production and you're afraid of that, don't be because it does require a lot of work. But at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter how much you publish if it's garbage. <laughs> I think no one's going to read it. Okay. So, yeah. Especially with the, like, the helpful content kind of update is only so long before. Yeah. Was there, yeah. Was, there, was there a point in your journey where do you think you let it like slip a bit while, whilst figuring out how to scale quality? Like where, like, do you think the quality has improved as you've gone? through the process? Uh, yes, absolutely. Definitely it has. So when we started out, you know, content distribution really started out with just Nick. And then I was one of the writers, right? Just a freelancer. When I came on, we were only working with a handful of writers producing maybe, you know, 12 to 15 pages a month. It was very easy to keep the quality really up there at that point. But when we, you know, started kind of scaling the whole process, publishing more content, hiring more people to do it. It just became so hard for me because I was kind of the one leading the kind of content quality initiative there. It just became incredibly hard. And I definitely let some things slip in the beginning before I realized, okay, this is not working. You can't do this on your own. You have to document literally all the guidelines, everything that you want your writers, your editors, your, you know, anyone to do. Otherwise, there's just no way for one person to QA that mm -hmm. much content on their own. So yeah, definitely we had some struggles there and it was not easy building that knowledge base. I mean, I still do it. We still actively build it, but it took me, you know, a good six months of kind of very dedicated work to set up the standards that now our entire company is using even to this day. Of course, they're building more things on top of that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. There were some mistakes made there. <laughs> um, no, but that's perfect. Like, I think there needs to be more nuance in the debate. Like everyone is, you know, watching from afar and just being like, well, you know, it's easy to be critical, but like everyone's on a yeah. journey of trying to execute the strategy well and it's improving. And exactly, you know, yeah. I think it's important that people hear that you do care about quality, like despite the scale. 100%. Yeah. I have one more question before we kind of dive right into that. Mm -hmm. And that's like, how does this strategy of scaling your content really, really quickly and dramatically fit into most people's mm -hmm. overall growth strategy? Like, why do they come to you? Like, what are they trying to achieve here? Yeah. So a lot of people that come to us really want to dominate their niche. Like whatever industry they're in, they're like, I want to be number one. Whenever people search for anything related to what I do, I want to be there. I want all the eyeballs. We really like working with those brands because it's a challenge. Like you, you want to work on something that challenges you every single day, right? So that's primarily why they come to us. For people that come to us on the SaaS side to use Workello to kind of scale, you know, hire their content teams and get started with this, I don't recommend going that quickly. I actually recommend doing it slow, setting up your foundations when I say slow, I don't mean two years. I mean, don't do it in a month, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you need time to set up everything. You need time to, first of all, learn what you're doing and then teach your team how to produce good content at a certain scale. So don't publish 800 pages a month. <laughs> Definitely start slow and then slowly ramp up to, you know, 50, 100, whatever you feel comfortable with. And I promise you the results will be there. There's 
there are there are zero projects that I know that use this exact framework that have failed. Like none of them failed. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so they failed because they haven't done the framework too. Yeah. You can only, you know, fail if you don't do the work. And again, it doesn't have to be my well, my our <laughs> particular like framework. You know, it's good for you if you are really serious about this. But yeah you can fail only if you don't do the work and you don't do your research and you don't set up those foundations and you know you don't care basically you have to care that's yeah one, I think. that makes <laughs> sense yeah i've actually had that experience like firsthand like the more you care the more you can set up your writers or the more you can basically if, if yeah. you have an external team working with you like you have to be able to convey what you your brand and your yeah. everything that you want to say to them in the best way like you have to do that groundwork like or they won't exactly. write like you or the the quality you want. Exactly, exactly. I read your post about Monday.com and it really resonated with me because it's so similar to what we do. The whole kind of, um, I don't want to say framework again because I said it so many times, but the whole process <laughs> sounds very, very similar to everything that you know I personally believe in and everything that we do and kind of what we teach our team to how to do their work. And yeah, so... It really, like, caring is the number one thing, whoever you are. If you're a customer or you're actually doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, that post went a little crazy on my LinkedIn yesterday. Yeah, it was really good. (laughs) I like the design of of the carousel you did. It's really good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That took me far too long to make. Another thing I wanted to ask, so what about that in your presentation, right, we talked about having, like, authoritative sites and, like, Mm Yeah, like the the fact that Google says, like, we can only call a site authoritative after like, or we can't really with it when it's only got 30 articles. Um, yeah. How does that play into this kind of strategy? Yeah. So this is also kind of a hot topic, I guess, on LinkedIn. Some people say you don't need hundreds of pages. Some people say you need hundreds of pages. I'm in this other bucket that I think you actually do. And I mean, it's very simple. If you think like your customer and your consumer, you know, if I were researching something, whatever it is, you know, let's say in the pet space, my dog is not feeling well and I want to know how to fix their problems. I would definitely trust someone like veterinarians.org. They have so many pages of content. Obviously, you know, they work with doctors. They're a credible brand rather than, you know, sallysblog.com that talks about, I don't know, knitting, knitting and then has one article on why my dog is feeling bad. That doesn't really convey anything to me. I would, and you kind of do this in academia as well. When you research your credible sources, you obviously want someone who is an established brand. They obviously know what they're talking about. They have a lot of content. So it really makes sense. And when you look at any niche, you will see that all the top players have a lot of content. It, there are exceptions. I don't know any of them, but I'm sure there are exceptions. But yeah, most of them, you know, I don't know, dog, I have a list right here. So I'll just read off of that. Like dog time, they have 5,000 pages. So everyone trusts them. And it's basically, you want to be as credible as you can be. And then for me, at least Google comes second, although it shouldn't. I mean, <laughs> we're, yeah. we all kind of work for Google, but in kind of a philosophical sense, you know, if you do good things for your readers and your audience, first of all, I see no reason why, you know, Google won't consider you an authority as well yeah. if you do the work, you know, if you set up your foundations and you have a lot of good content on your website. Yeah. yeah. 
No, yeah, that, that makes complete sense. This whole idea of I talk about authority, like I think it's a good metaphor, like what you say with science and stuff. It's like, who do you trust? Like the guy who has made a hundred papers on this topic and has researched it loads and like, yeah, it's all he does or she does. Or do you trust the person who did this once or is an expert exactly. in the topic? But yeah, ultimately Google is designing a similar process, like algorithm. Yeah. And I mean, they have to. It's a huge business. There are, what, billions and billions of websites out there. And how do you know who's right? I mean, maybe yeah. I'm a genius and I publish one article and I'm right. But can you trust me? Like, no, you can't because you don't know who I am. <laughs> I never talked about it before ever. And yeah, you just... You get a lot of misinformation like that, which is a whole different topic. So, yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I did a whole case study on Investopedia, which is like, you know, mm -hmm. all, all they talk about is finance. And I'm like, there's a reason they win finance, which is such a hard to win term. It's like 10 years of writing five, six thousand of pages about finance. Like, that's... exactly. Yeah, I saw that one. I remember it was so <laughs> like, oh my God, yes, exactly. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, especially for those serious topics, you know, you really have to be careful who you trust and one way to appear trustworthy and to be trustworthy, not just appear, is to just have proof that you are and yeah. proof in this case is content. Yeah, definitely. Perfect. So that's a good place. We're going to go segue into the playbook and the framework and mm -hmm. teaching people how yeah. to do this themselves mm -hmm. if they're brave enough to try it themselves yeah <laughs> <laughs> where do we start like what's the foundation like what's the the very first thing you need and then you know what's next what what do people mm -hmm. need in place yeah so first of all you know bravery as you said yeah i'm kidding i mean you you do have to be aware of what you're getting yourself into it's not, you know, everyone needs to produce content, whoever you are, however big or small your company is. I really think that content is the tried and true way to monetize anything, to get customers, get leads, to, to even get like affiliate income. So first of all, you need to know kind of what I'm getting myself into. And that is you need to have a good content ops, you know, software stack, use really good tools. You need to learn how to do knowledge transfer because you can't produce all this content yourself. You need to learn how to hire, you know, writers, editors, basically SEO, anyone on your team. You need to get out of the content production process because you have to make money. And what I actually, you know, like is just remove SEOs from the process entirely. So that is approximately, you know, a couple of things you have to think about. Am I ready for this? Most people are ready, even though you're afraid. I don't think you have to be because you don't have to go from zero to 100 on day one. You can definitely ramp up a little bit slow. So yeah. And of course you have to expect to spend money. Obviously content is yeah. not yeah. cheap. Set, set aside a budget. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. I know my biggest worry going into this year, like trying to scale, like we're nowhere near as, as much as you're creating, but it was that, how do we do this? How do we make quality, like that knowledge transfer part and also like hiring the right writers or yeah. trusting other writers to to do this? And luckily we had like an agency who are great at finding writers as well. Like, I guess yeah. like, but yeah, that, and that worry of at some point the CEO is going to say, oh, we have like a hundred articles. Why are we doing this? Or like, yeah, <laughs> I don't want him to read it and go, that's not like, doesn't make sense for us. Or, yeah. So like, that was the worry for me. Yeah. You're not the only one. I mean, that's kind of the biggest worry, but. I talk to a lot of people, obviously, almost every day about this exact thing, you know, content ops and kind of hiring and building your team. And 
it is one of the biggest hurdles that you kind of have to go through is just, I want the results, but all the setup is, you know, it's a lot of work. It's not impossible, definitely, but also you can't just do it kind of willy-nilly and be like, oh yeah, I'll just, you know, hire someone to like hire a content agency to write my content. You can definitely, don't get me wrong. But even if you hire a content agency, you still have to put in some work on your end and at least explain what you want, which sometimes can also take a long time. Yeah, definitely. I think what we should do is I jump into the, like the software stack and the knowledge and get transfer and that stuff. But we, firstly, I would say like, let's assume there is lots of stuff out there teaching you how to find keywords to go after. Mm -hmm. Let's just assume that they know which topics. Yeah sense for now Uh, I've I've just I've addressed that before in like different podcasts just like the process for finding the right keywords for Mm -hmm. you so we can jump straight into the ops only which is yeah yeah. please because I'm actually not an SEO so I don't do I love doing keyword research but I'm not even close to an expert (laughs) Uh, I usually talk to my director SEO for that so yeah definitely I'm I'm good to skip that one okay cool we'll get Um, we'll get him on the podcast another time yeah, to just he's keywords yeah 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 he's he's amazing he's a popular guy at least i've been meaning to i've been meaning to get him yeah. on for a while, but i wanted to uh, do you first yeah. um thank you i'm gonna <laughs> brag about that in team meetings like <laughs> <laughs> i'll have had your whole team on at some point i guess <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so software stack we may as well like feel free to to shout out your own tools but tell us why thank you I, what i think is smart is that you guys have obviously from the outside anyway, it looks like you built software that solves your own problems, scaling content. That's exactly it. Yeah, that is exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> what, what have you created and what do people need? Yeah, so we uh, have created this uh, little thing called Workello. It is a kind of a pre-hire assessment platform originally designed for content teams, writers, editors, anyone who needs to produce content. Since then, it has evolved. Like people have hired other roles as well, but we are very much focused on, you know, writers and editors. And the reason why we built it was literally because I was having a very hard time hiring. I was actually running our our entire recruiting at one point. And it's, it's really hard. We can talk about it later when we talk about kind of building your team. But exactly that, we built a tool that works for us. And we're like, okay, this is obviously a problem, problem for everyone else. Let's, you know, launch it publicly. And it helps you do what? The tool? Uh, just hire a content team. Hire so yeah, hire writers. It's not a marketplace. So it's not like a job board or anything. It's basically a tool that helps you funnel all of your candidates from wherever, you know, LinkedIn, ProBlogger, even Upwork and other job boards, Facebook groups, Reddit. It just funnels everyone into one place. Everyone is separated by status. So everything is super clean. All the candidate communication is automated so yeah. you never ghost people which is <laughs> good don't ghost your candidates and of course you can test them everything is integrated right there so you never really have to leave you never have to send those emails or make google docs or basically you don't have to do the stuff that i was doing for a very long time and spending you know 30 hours a week hiring it's a great tool try it highly recommend it not just because i made it but you know it's useful we we have some some good case studies <laughs> on our website that you can check out. So what? that's obviously kind of our first number one tool nice. on the software stack. 
And the point there is this helps you operationalize hiring yeah. writers, make it easy because because you're going to need, like with the Monday.com story, like they had to vet 1500 writers to find 15 that they yeah. really wanted. And if you're going to do that. Exactly. Yeah. That would. is exactly our process. That's why everything resonated with me so much because I always talk about you have to evaluate, you know, hundreds of candidates to get that, you know, one or two that are really, really good. And it absolutely makes sense. You know, I can say this because I was a writer for a very long time, but, you know, a lot of writers are not even writers. It's very easy to apply for these jobs. Anyone who speaks English thinks they can write. It's kind of the same when, you know, you study English like I did and and people say, why do you study English? Everyone can speak English. Well, Mm. sure. But, you know, who taught you, (laughs) right? It's the same with writers. It really makes me sad because I see that a lot of companies kind of have this negative connotation when they think about growing their content team because they know what they're getting themselves into. It's very time consuming. It's it's just not fun, right? And then these really, really good writers that apply for these jobs never even get the chance to be you know, interviewed or to do any kind of assessment because there are just so many people in the funnel. And so what ends up happening is you miss out on those really good, you know, diamonds kind of in the, in the dust or whatever that expression is. I don't know, (laughs) just because you don't have time. And I mean, it's not your fault. Like it is overwhelming. So our goal with that was to eliminate that biggest hurdle, which is just the overwhelmingness of the entire process and really help you hire the top 1%, just like you know, with the monday.com, they evaluated 1,500 writers, if I remember correctly, to get 15, which sounds insane. Like, how did you do that? I wish I knew, but that's kind of exactly our process. (laughs) And honestly, go through it and yeah, you'll find the top 1%. I can see why you, I think I remember like maybe a year and a half ago, like seeing an image of your air table with it all set up, like hiring is, and I'm guessing Workello replaced that air table, did it? Yeah. It so did, yeah. So we, I actually hacked version one of Workello before Workello even existed with a bunch of different tools and a lot of zaps. And, you know, it works for a little bit, but then like if one of my zaps breaks and I'm not really sure which one and at which stage of the process, then that was also kind of a a huge thing. So luckily my co-founders, Nick and Lauren, they're very nice guys and they saw me struggling. They're like, do you want us to make you a tool? And I said, yes. <laughs> and that's how we got here. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. Just so quickly, what else in the, it should be in the in their software stack setting this up? Mm-hmm. So I know I just said a couple of bad things about Airtable. I actually love Airtable. We actually use Airtable for pretty much everything. We have our content calendars there. We even run our sprints in Airtable. I keep all the important things in, in Airtable basis, such as, you know, my recruiting kind of sources and job boards and everything. So highly, highly, highly recommend their product. We use slides for knowledge-based building. We are huge on documentation. So we needed a tool to kind of streamline that and make it not a Google doc because that was a nightmare. We landed on slides. We love those guys. They're amazing. 
please uh, start an affiliate program so I can become one. Just like everyone else, you know, we use Slack for communication. We use Zoom for meetings. I still use a lot of Zaps to automate just really tedious tasks when it comes to, you know, publishing or uploading to WordPress or just creating these Google Docs for writers. That's also super annoying. And yeah, we use Grammarly, of course. I think everyone does at this point. But if you don't, you should because it's really, really good. You know, DocuSign, TransferWise, or to pay people. And we have this little Slack app called Geekbot. It's really, really cool. And we basically use it for asynchronous daily standups because our team is kind of scattered all over the world and not everyone is in the same time zone. So it's a really, really nice tool that you can use to just have some daily recording. Yeah, those are the main ones. There are others, but I would say Airtable, Slides, Slack, Workello. Nice. So cool. You should do a case study on just like working asynchronously with like hundreds of writers. That is a very good idea. Thank you. <laughs> I should this do would that. Be interesting. Yeah, it's like the new world. Yeah. 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 Oh my god! Why didn't <laughs> I think of that? Thank you. <laughs> Definitely doing that. Awesome. You have to credit me now. Um, I will. I hundred percent will. <laughs> Inspired by. Yeah. Okay. So. I think because we talked like quite a lot about writers, I had like loads of questions to ask you about writers. Maybe let's start there and then go on to like the documentation that you guys get set up. But we can do writers and editing. I think really, apart from piecing all that together, like the people that actually do this and like what work of 800 pages a month, people are writers. Like, exactly. yeah. yeah. So why don't we start with another tough question, I guess, which is like, how do you make sure writers like you said you're a writer as well like I think a lot of people would worry that you're making 800 articles for you know x amount of dollars how is everyone being treated fairly along that process yep. and getting paid yeah. what they are happy with and all of this yes that's also kind of a hot topic I would say it's uncomfortable to talk about right because it's money it's someone's livelihood but I think you know whoever you are every company's kind of goal is to pay as little as possible and get as much as possible. I know that sounds wrong, but I will explain. So when we started out, as I said, obviously it was just the two of us. We had one client. You can't really have a lot of money set aside to hire someone who's based in San Francisco and pay them a really good wage because if I work with someone, I really want them to be taken care of so they don't have to think about, am I going to pay my bills this month? Like that is yeah. Not something that I'm into because I personally went through that whole struggle when I was a writer and it's just no. So when our team grew from very rapidly, by the way, from one to you know 45 writers and editors, that was another kind of operational challenge to, as you said, treat everyone fairly, pay them a fair price. So what we did was, okay, we realized we can't hire people in the US. We just, it's impossible. It would cost our clients millions of dollars to fulfill that. So we turned to other countries and I'm also from another country. I'm not American. I'm not from Western Europe. I'm actually Eastern European. And when I started hiring writers, I was thinking, okay, you know, I'm here. I'm getting paid really well for where I live. Like my life is really comfortable. Why don't we hire people from this region and have them also live very comfortably rather than underpaying someone in the U.S., which is something that I just don't want to do. Just, yeah. So if you think about it, you know, I'm not sure what the salaries are now, but 
I have some numbers. If you want to hire a writer, let's say in San Francisco, you have to pay them at least $90,000 a year. And I would say you probably have to go a little bit higher it, because it's just very expensive to live there, right? Yeah. And let's say they write 200 articles a year. So your cost per page is about $450. But if you hire someone in you know Eastern Europe for eighteen dollars to $20,000 a year, maybe even more, and they produce the same number of pages, well, your cost per page is now $90. So it really gives you an advantage over someone who doesn't have, you know, either the means or the luxury to hire people in other countries, either as freelancers or contractors, or even setting up their own kind of presences and little LLCs in all these countries. I think more and more people are starting to feel very open about hiring writers who are not native speakers. You know, I was definitely one of them. Well, I am one of them. I'm not a native speaker. English is my second language, definitely not my first one. So I really do believe that you don't need to hire Americans to get that content quality. I don't know. I think you should give a chance to someone maybe from an underprivileged background and kind of a not a really nice place to live. Like yeah. I can say it. I'm from Serbia. It's not a great place. Give them a chance. You know, they're probably really good. <laughs> and why not keep your costs down, but still pay your employees or your contractors a very fair wage. So that is my whole philosophy around that. And I see that a lot more companies are being more and more open to that approach. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting. It's really interesting to hear your perspective on it as someone from that country yourself and as a writer yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess you can empathize with the people you're hiring a little more. I think I would like to see like not seeing those countries so much as like, oh great, we can pay them less. But yeah, like, like exactly. how you like but like how you positioned it as a Obviously, the cost of living is less in those countries. Yeah. And there are people there who are neat, who want the opportunity as well. And if you can see exactly. that, it's per- per- yeah. fair. Yeah. For me, you know, when I was uh, a writer, I, my goal was really, you know, because like my country and a lot of other countries, mine is definitely not the worst. But, you know, the, the average national salary is really low, but everything is pretty much the same price as like Western Europe. So you really kind of have to really fight to, yeah, it's really bad. Really, really have to fight to kind of get a good job and, you know, work these crazy hours. But when you are a content writer or an editor, you have a little bit more freedom. You can probably work remotely and you can work with a company that can pay really, really well. You know, you improve your life. You, I don't know. It's just a lot easier. There's not that stress. It's a kind of a tough topic. Like we don't have to talk about this, but I don't know. I'm just very, very passionate about the candidate experience and kind of let's stop viewing, you know, Eastern Europe and like Southeast Asia as these like cheap countries, you know, it's like cheap to live, cheap labor. No, there are really good professionals in these countries who can speak English just as well as someone from the U.S. can. Why not give them a chance when you can, you know, if you can. So I think I'm on your I'm on your page. And definitely. Thank you. (laughs) I hear that. There's obviously like, I think it's imagine what people can say and I've seen it, but I think it's, they should listen to what you're, what you're saying really. We need to work a lot to change that stigma of, you know, non-native equals bad, which is definitely, definitely not the case. I think opinions are shifting for the better. Like I'm very happy about the current state of kind of opinions on that topic. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Perfect. I told you I'd ask some challenging stuff. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a paid advertisement from our sponsors. UseUp is a performance-driven SEO agency that helps ambitious brands get high authority backlinks and make SEO their customer growth engine. I've personally built a high-scale SEO content strategy, and if I could go back, the one thing I wish I did was fuel that traffic with backlinks. We grew so much slower because we thought we could win on the quality of our content alone. And frankly, even though it was 10 times better than our competitors, a lot of that content didn't rank. It was only when we started proactively claiming backlinks that traffic went from 10% a month growth to 20% a month jumps. Almost all the crazy SEO growth stories on this podcast were ran alongside ambitious PR campaigns and professional backlink building, which helped fuel authority and actually underline their traffic growth. It's all about authority and perception. Those things take time to build organically without a backlink partner you can trust. UseUp can be that partner. Okay, so next one, you talked about having getting them all the writers into one place. I think a big question there is like, where do you find all these writers mm-hmm. like, from all around the world? Where do you advertise? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are a couple of ways you can go about this, really depending on what kind of company you are. The first one applies to everyone, use job boards. So every country has their national job board or even multiple national job boards. There is ProBlogger, which is like my favorite place <laughs> because okay. all the, the writers and editors hang out there. But if you really want to target specific countries, go to their specific job boards. The second place you can find writers are communities, interest-based communities. And this is probably going to be the most useful for people looking for very niche writers. Whatever your niche is, I'm sure there is a community for it. I've seen some weird communities out there, so they definitely yeah. exist. You won't get as many candidates as you would on a traditional job board, but all the candidates that you get will be very heavily interested in that niche. And they obviously are very passionate. They want to write about it. So, you know, you kind of sacrifice the numbers for that very particular experience you need. The third place may be a little bit unexpected, but works especially well for people that have you know, e-commerce stores or especially niche e-commerce, you know, your customers, uh, you have an email list. A lot of your customers are probably very passionate about what you sell because they gave you money. You know, they obviously like you. I had a, a Workello customer who, they're like a sports manufacturer for this sport. I've never heard of. <laughs> I didn't even know it existed. It's called pickleball. I, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> And I'm like, I honestly don't know where you can find people. Like, why don't you email your customers and see who may be interested in writing for you? And they got 90 candidates. They had some world champions in this sport that I'm sorry, I still don't know what it is, but apparently it has a very passionate fan base. They had people that are basically pros and they were willing to write for them. So that one was a little bit unexpected, but works really, really, really well. Interesting. If you are that type of business. And yeah, those would be the primary places that I focus on. Obviously, your personal network is good, but your personal network is never going to be as big as all these other, you know, communities and job boards and and even your your customer base. So I would say, you know, turn to your personal network if you need something very, very, very specific and you know a specific person that can do it. But most people probably don't have a lot of writers in their little community of people. And, you know, they would turn to these other resources. I can share, I don't know if you can, if you want, but I can share a bunch of resources and you can share. Oh yeah, please. That'd be great. Yeah, we made a huge list. Yeah. (laughs) 
we'll send it and i'll i'll include it in the show notes somewhere if we can if you don't mind yeah Um, cool so okay so i wanted to ask you what are you looking for what should people look for in writers like while they're scaling up like how do you Mm -hmm. how do you think about who who to look for i think even you mentioned it there like customers and niche communities and that's like people interested in your subject seems like yeah that's a good place to start yeah so what i look for is first of all someone who can write (laughs) write well i don't really care if they have experience or not for me it's irrelevant because i very heavily rely on documentation even when it's a very niche thing like for example for workello we are writing a lot of kind of hiring related content my writers are not recruiters. They are writers. You know, they, as I said, they studied English. They don't know anything about recruiting. But I'm fine with that because I have a lot of supporting documentation and templates that they can use, you know, content briefs and kind of about the project enablement documentation that I give them that they can very easily learn the things that I need them to write about. This is not always possible. For some niches, you definitely cannot do this, but for others, you can go a more general way. So what you're looking for is, first of all, someone who can actually write. Second of all, someone who knows what they're talking about. Or if they don't, they are really, really good at researching the topic and learning new things. And then for me, what's really important is just good communication. You know, if you are struggling with an article that you're writing, like, I want you to come to me instead of sitting for six hours and kind of banging your head on the table and not knowing what you're doing. And also just kind of being easy to work with, with the rest of the team, with your editors, with other writers. What's really important for us is finding people that care about the projects that we're working on. And I was incredibly lucky when I was hiring my kind of first little content team. I found some incredible people. Like I'm just so grateful for them because... Those first-time content writers, they never did the job before, are now, one of them is my project manager. Another one is coming very close to being a head of operations. And the third one is our senior editor. And they're all amazing women. They're very passionate. And the reason why they got there was because they really cared about the content. They cared about the content quality and they cared about the people that they work with. So, yeah. Great. Do you hire... (laughs) When you're scaling up for a project like this, are you hiring everyone in-house or are you, is it balancing that with a lot of freelance people in your team? In-house. And for yeah. us, it's in-house. <laughs> yeah, we found it a lot easier just because now we are we have these established processes and it's much easier for us to hire in-house because our writers are not just contractors. Uh, you know, they get paid time off. They get, you know, health insurance and things like that. We really treat them like employees. And we have this onboarding process that doesn't make sense to do with a freelancer because freelancers don't have time for that. They have other clients. So we have this kind of particular system there. But if you're starting out, I would not recommend starting out like that. Don't hire people in-house on day one. You know, start with a freelancer. And if you need one writer, hire three <laughs> on a freelance basis. Because if you work with more people, you will get more surface area to figure out, okay, first of all, are they really as good as I initially thought they were? Second of all, do they care? Third of all, will one of these writers become my editor? So I can get out of editing and start, you know, if you're an agency going 
I don't know, to get clients or if you're an e-commerce focusing on supplies or whatever else you do with your SaaS, developing a product. So don't hire people in-house on the first go, you know, try it out with a few of them. That is exactly why I'm here now. You know, that works with me. I was one of the 10 writers Nick works with and then became an editor and slowly got to, you know, co-founder, which is yeah. not something I expected or <laughs> anyone expected. The crazy journey. Uh, but it really, yeah, <laughs> a little bit crazy. Yeah. But it definitely can happen. And what just really matters is that you find that one person that really, really, really cares about this. And then you can start introducing, you know, the PTO and like holidays and Christmas parties and everything else for the people. But you need that one writer to start hmm. with. And you need the surface area to figure out who that is. Yeah, nice. Okay, so you have, do you say how many 45 writers in-house at the moment? Um, no, not at the moment. At one point, we had 45. We have downsized since then because we launched Workello and we kind of have to focus more on the SaaS side. So I'm actually not sure. <laughs> now I, okay, okay. I, should, I should know that. But it's I a lot, check. I guess. But yeah, it's, it's not 45. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. This all makes sense. Okay. So yeah, so you've got like a lot of writers in-house to help like scale all these things. If people are gonna scale up, they have to think about how much output they need and how much resources they need in-house to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Or if they can balance that with freelancers um as well, I suppose. Yeah, if, yeah if they can, that's great. But it just becomes super, super hard when you set up going back to the documentation and everything. When you actually set up your system, it just becomes really hard to deal with with freelancers which, I mean, I love freelancers. I used to be a freelancer, but when I was a freelancer, I didn't have time to read through pages and pages of documents for one client because I had 10, right? So at that point, when you actually get everything set up, when you're good, you just mm -hmm. ask one of them to come and be an in-house writer. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, that's a really interesting point about whether, yeah, whether to work with freelancers in primarily or, because I, I think it's, it's probably right. Like what, either way, if you hire a freelancer, you should try to get them for a long time. So they do invest in understanding your product. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but otherwise like get them in house and then they'll, you know, they'll be naturally like prepared to dig into the subject for you and everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. It's a tough, I think it's a tough balance. I can see how to not wanting to maybe hire like tons of people in house suddenly, if you're not like a content operation yeah if you're not an agency or you know if you don't have things established it's very very hard which is why i don't recommend that you just go one day i'm gonna have an in-house team 100. no come on <laughs> you know you've got to start slow that does not happen overnight <laughs> yeah definitely per writer what can you expect of them like how much content can be created i think that's probably controversial per writer you know like everyone's is, like yeah i'm i'm slow but like I prefer to go like deep and like make it perfect. So I'm probably not the writer that you want to scale with. I don't know, but maybe I, I don't know. Well, how does that, how do you approach that? It could be. It's tough. As you said, this one really depends on the person. So someone is so fast, they can produce, you know, one article a day with not even breaking a sweat and they're just a the natural, they can do it. I mean, good for them. That's like, the perfect writer that we want. Not everyone is like that. Of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Some people are a bit slower. So, you know, in, in my case, what I would do is figure out, let's say you hired those three freelancers and you're considering bringing them in-house. 
I would start with asking like, okay, how much can you actually produce in a month? You know, is it 30 articles, which no one can do that, but let's say for the sake of an argument, it's 30. Is it, you know, 20? Is it 10? Is it five? What is it? And then what I would do is, and what we do is we have tiers almost. We have to figure out better names for these tiers. Right now, we just call them part-time, full-time, and senior writer, <laughs> but we do need better names. So in our case, part-time writers obviously produce the least amount of content, you know, maybe a couple articles a week or even less in some cases. Full-time writers, I mean, there's no time involved yeah. in this at all, right? They're at, I don't know how many, like three, four articles a week at this point. And then senior writers, I think are pretty much the same. Maybe they do more, but they are senior because they are, yeah, they're good. <laughs> they're never late. They even, you know, help make the process a lot better with their suggestions and they're just really invested. They will okay. probably move on to other roles if they want to in the future. So really depends on the writer. But when it comes to editing, I think one editor per two writers is a fair assessment of kind of labor division, nice. whatever we want to call it. You can definitely do more as an editor, but... Yeah, I don't know. You lose focus after a little bit. I think two is two idea. for one. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, sorry, one one editor for two writers. And what what's like the role of an editor in your team? Like, what do they what are they looking mm -hmm. for? So our editors are actually doing a lot of things. They're not just editing, which is why you know two writers per editor is kind of what we do. They obviously edit content. They have one-on-one -on -one meetings with the writers to just give them some more feedback or just, you know, see how they're feeling. You know, if they like their little pod. We call them pods now. I keep coming up with these terms. Um, <laughs> they, you know, obviously they meet with other editors to just discuss the projects, if anything changed, if there was any feedback from the clients. They figure out how to implement that in their next round of editing and coordinate, you know, with the writers and everything like that. They meet with their managers, again, for more like a higher, how are you feeling type of meeting, maybe some feedback there. And the most important thing, well, one of the most important things is they create content series briefs or content series templates, whatever you want to call them, which are kind of an integral part of our content production process, which is why we were able to scale as much as we have. And content series brief is just like a content brief, except for one individual article, it covers the entire series. I think you also mentioned that in your monday.com post, you know, templated things. Mm -hmm. This is something similar to that, but a little bit longer with a little bit more information. And it just helps speed up the research process and the writing process for the writer. And then wow. of course, the editing process for the editor, because they can always refer to that template or brief that they mm -hmm. made while they're editing and very easily figure out if the writer kind of followed their instructions or if they just did their own thing, which is nice when you're doing creative writing, but not nice when you do things for traffic, right? So yeah, our editors are amazing. I love them so much. They, you know, they all started as writers. None of them were editors before this mm -hmm. but they very very quickly ramped up they learned and you know they also do qa and yeah cool okay, take okay. Care of content quality this so this this content series brief template seems like you said integral it's important mm -hmm. like, 
maybe yes. we should just dig into that a little bit more like what what's in that are you able mm-hmm. to share one of those is that like your secret sauce a little bit um, it's a secret sauce a little bit yeah so okay. we i can definitely talk about it but i don't have Unless anything exactly. i can visually share <laughs> yeah <laughs> we do sell these as part of workello we have this workello plus tier i won't get too much into it but we have our SOPs that people can get when they want to scale. But anyway, content briefs, content series briefs. Honestly, I don't know what we would do without them. We probably would not be able to publish anything. If you think of a content series brief, first of all, you think of the process that comes before that, which is keyword research and keyword clustering. I won't get into too much detail here, but we do cluster all, all our keywords and we get these big deliverables. We identify the kind of series or a series of articles that are pretty similar in that vertical or that clustering deliverable that we got. I'll give you an example. Let's say we're doing a review series on different brands of earbuds. So, you know, I don't have to come up with very unique structure for every single article if the only thing that's different is the brand name. That's pretty a templatable thing. So instead of creating briefs for each one individually, we just do the entire series and our editors go in, they do a lot of research beforehand. They, you know, research all those keywords in Ahrefs, see what else is ranking. And then they start crafting the templates that, you know, the goal of the template is to be better than anything Google is showing on page one. So, you know, if my competitors have, I don't know, 500 word articles, I'm going to do 700. If they have five, you know, H2s, I will do eight. If they have one picture per article, I'm going to do three. I'm also going to insert a lot of structured data, you know, lists and tables and kind of, if I can, infographics and various things like that. And so we put it in a template. We give them literally an example of what that's going to look like and kind of suggestions what to write in each of the H2s, which... Obviously, they switch them up according to the topic. They're not always the same, but we give them ideas. We probably have, I don't know, 10 examples of H2s that they can use just so we can steer their research process in the right direction. You can also include a glossary of terms if it's a particular niche that's not very kind of everyday thing. Of course, give them some example articles that are really good from other blogs and from even our client if, if they already have something. And yeah, that is something the editors create. It takes them, you know, about a day to make one at this point, but it's so valuable. It saves so much time in the long run. First of all, for the poor editors who don't have to make these briefs every single day, but then also for the writers that, you know, don't have to think about like, oh my God, what structure do I use now? You know, do I go with a listicle? Do I go with a typical kind of big paragraph article style? They don't have to think about that. They know exactly what they need to do. And it's kind of like filling in the blanks so they can can focus more on their creative side. Yeah, please. Sorry. Now ask you a good question. Yeah. So what's the process? Can you talk me through maybe like one keyword with a listicle, for example, like how does it work? Does an editor and your team go, okay, for this keyword, they do a little research and they say, this is a listicle. Here's the template we use for listicles typically follow that basically, or do they then write a brief? And yeah, so they don't, yeah, they write briefs for the entire series of listicles that we have in the clustered deliverable. Yeah. So it would be anywhere from, you know, five to 
has sometimes it was 50 articles, honestly, in a series that all have kind of the same structure. They obviously don't have the same content. They don't have the same yeah. issues. But I think when you give your writers a lot of guidance, they is I don't know, it's just so much easier. I never used to get these briefs when I was a writer. And I would just kind of make up my own thing. It would take much, much longer to write any piece of content. But the first time I got it, I was like, oh, my God, writing is so easy. (laughs) Yeah, because you just go through it so quickly and you can really, really focus on making your articles beautiful and like well-researched and creative and funny instead of worrying about like, oh, my God, what do I do now? How many words is this supposed to have? Mm -hmm. Um, Should I put in some lists or some pictures like what do I do so we eliminate all of that and we just let them go crazy with their beautiful brains and just write really good content (laughs) okay that's cool we talked about it in previous podcasts about having like there are patterns if you're tackling like thousands of keywords there are patterns there's like maybe 10 variations Yeah. yeah but then for each article there is like the nuance like you said if the competitors have five h2s we want to do a little bit more yeah We always want to do better. Our main goal, yeah. So, I mean, we say, let's say in the the content series brief or template, we say, okay, because we did our research initially and we figured out, let's say that most of the competitive kind of blogs or articles have five H2s. We say, okay, you do at least seven or eight. And then here are some examples of what you can do Because our main goal is to show the best possible piece of content Google can show. So to be better than anyone, to offer more information, to offer it in a simpler maybe way with structured data or with, you know, anything else. That is our main goal when we think about content quality. And I should have mentioned this when we talked about content (laughs) But it's kind of the primary goal. Just be better than anything you can find right now. That usually means do a little bit more work which is fine because, again, a lot of the work is done upfront in that kind of research and templating phase, and then the writers can just have ready nicely. <laughs> nice. Cool. Cool, yeah. And before anyone comments, it, it doesn't, we're not just saying, like, just longer is better. Like, it needs no, to be no, yeah. well written and it needs to be, yeah, just make exactly, it. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> exactly. They, it doesn't make sense, you know. It, I don't know. I honestly don't believe that, if you can't say what you want to say in like 3,000 words, I mean, come mm. on, you know, you don't have to go crazy. Sometimes you do, but in most cases, you don't need to write 8,000 word guides in most cases. So yeah, it's definitely not just do more, more, more. It has to be good. It has to be high quality. It has to be relevant first of all. It's it's really like, that's an interesting one because I'm I'm like totally on that page. But this, the one of the keywords that Monday one was this project management software and they wrote like oh yeah that's a tough one <laughs> they, they but they wrote eighteen thousand words on that yeah one article and they've yeah. got 500 different project management softwares in one post or something i mean yeah you I, no <laughs> one can beat that right no one can beat that yeah. it makes sense for something that's very very competitive like project management software everyone's trying to rank for that so in those cases it would probably make sense but for most keywords you really don't have to do that. There are exceptions, of course, but most of them, you don't have to do it. Yeah, 100%. And and that being said as well, like I've written a much longer article than everyone else on the search results before. And it, it went to number one, but then everyone else slightly adjusted theirs. And it wasn't about the length that mattered only. Like they had yeah. 
the sites had more authority like they were better written like I, I can admit that and yeah <laughs> they, and they beat it and the ultimately it's like how much topical authority do you have how much like there's so yeah. many factors in winning there's just so much you have to think about it's sometimes it's kind of tiring like okay well, what is next that I have to deal with <laughs> and it's everything <laughs> That's, but it's fun it's what I love about this whole thing is like how can we scale thinking about all of those things like the sheer amount of volume sort of takes the the authority side of things like okay now you have 100 pages on one topic like perfect yeah Uh, but then there's yeah there are other factors that come into this yeah definitely maybe we should talk about other documentation before as like a Mm -hmm. final topic i think like we've actually have like sort of slid into loads of documentation there already but (laughs) is there any other like key bits of documentation people need Yes. So if uh, I know we just talked about the briefs, but you can't have a brief if you don't have the foundation for that brief. Yeah. Uh, in our case, we call that enablement documentation. Basically, it's a collection of documents. Let's say the first one is about the projects. I guess that one would be the most important one, uh, especially for you know agencies working with different clients. You have kind of have to know what your clients are doing. You have to know that really, really well. But also for, you know, SaaS companies and anyone really, you know, I'd say if you want to be really serious about, you know, organic and kind of content production and everything, you have to treat even your own project like a client project, which is, again, what I, what I tell to, you know, my customers, just treat this like your customer and ask yourself these questions or have your editor ask you all these questions and it will be so much easier. What questions? I just realized I didn't tell you that. Uh, <laughs> we basically create a, a questionnaire for every single project that we work on, even our own, and the project stakeholders, whether it's your client or again you, just goes through and answers all of those questions the best they can. If we work with clients, we then schedule these knowledge transfer meetings or calls, and we use the recording from that meeting as kind of a basis and one source of truth because who knows our client's project better than our client (laughs) or you know if you're a SaaS company who knows your company better than you no one does so treat that as a source of truth yeah what are you what are you asking what kind of questions are we getting into with them yeah so I mean it can be anything I mean first of all you know who are you (laughs) what do you Mm -hmm. do would probably be the, the important one what is your, my favorite one is, you know, what is your strong opinion of the industry that you're in? And this is where you really see how your customer or client or you is different from the competition. And you kind of figure out more about that world right there. Who is your target audience? Who is your customer? Who's your primary customer? What do they buy? Why do they buy from you? What problem you're solving for them? And then more like language stuff, you know, do you use specific terminology? What's your kind of tone that you want to go with? And who is the leader in your space? Who is absolutely dominating dominating it right now with their content? And who are we going after? So those would be some. Of course, they will differ from, from project to project, obviously. Sometimes you may have some more specifics there, but these are the general ones that we always start with. And Yeah, we create that big document and then that is the basis for everything else that we do for the project. You know, you want to create your language guidelines for that specific project that are maybe different from your general writing guidelines. You know, maybe 
as I said, maybe there's a special terminology. Maybe you're writing about, you know, health. That's kind of very serious. You can't just use any old slang in a health-related article. And then, of course, they have the content briefs and everything over there. So that would be the foundation. You can, of course, expand it with other more process type of documents, like specific internal linking for that project. And maybe it's different from what you generally do. Maybe you want to document that. I don't know what else. I would say internal linking, like you may as well, like it's important that you do it. So you may as well have a guide for every writer instead of you doing it for hundreds of articles, like get the the writer to help you out maybe. Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly what we do. Uh, we put the internal linking guides in the content briefs. And it's like, okay, you have these five. Those are going to be our pillar pages. You have to link to these in every piece of content that mm-hmm. you make. Of course, they're in the same vertical and kind of the same content series. And then because we use Airtable, you know, you can very clearly see everything else that's being worked on that's published. And you can just grab the link that you want. You don't have to go do site search and then try to find it like that. So yeah, we definitely outsource that to the writers. Yeah. It would be impossible to do it another way. I know. And we've done, I've done that afterwards. And it's like, then it becomes one of those tasks that you're like, we need to get to that. And it, it's yeah. like, <laughs> and you never do. I mean, exactly. you have so much other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So build it in. It's that's a smart move. But that's, I think yeah. that maybe that's, that's the point of all of this, like build it into the process so you don't miss all the important steps. Exactly, exactly. And the more people touch something, you know, it's in this case, it's not like, what, what's that? Like it takes a village to raise a child. What's yeah. the expression? I don't know. Yeah, uh, in this case, it really is, you know, that content production is not a kind of a lone wolf type of job. You really have, to have a lot of eyes on one piece to make sure that it's good, to make sure that it's high quality. Like I personally wrote a couple of things recently and I thought they were amazing because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's more like thought leadership type of content. I'm like, that's good. Like it's really, oh my God, it was so bad. You know, when I read it a couple of days later, like, really? <laughs> I need an editor <laughs> right now. So yeah, you really need a lot of eyes. <laughs> yeah. That's such a great point, having like multiple eyes on your, on your content. It's so tempting just to yeah. be like, yeah, I've done this. Yeah, it's, I've done this so many times. Like, I'm good. No, <laughs> I need an editor. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, definitely. Is there any other documentation that you need to get in place? I'm trying to think. if there's Yeah, I mean, you have some general docs that are not project related, which would be your, you know, your writing guidelines, your kind of grammar guides that's universal to everything. My favorite one is I have a list of banned words and phrases because there are just some that I can't stomach and, you know, mm-hmm. they don't use it. <laughs> I have a running list of those. And then you have your kind of organizational documents that are relating to your PTO and kind of the, I don't know, values and culture. I think that's important when you're building a team for everyone to be on the same page. We also like to share our decision-making framework So everyone knows if they ask for something, you know, they know what the process is and they kind of know when they're going to get it and if they're going to get it. But those are more organizational. It's definitely, I don't think it's needed in the very, very beginning. I think you should focus on more of the content related docs. Like we have editing guidelines, a lot of them. We have guides on how to do keyword research and what to pay attention to, how to do the clustering and everything else. 
there's a lot. <laughs> it's both those like internal yeah. documents and like the keywords research and everything. And then there's the, yeah, like the- And the then there's the project stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, crazy. It's a it's a huge under uh, like undertaking. You know, it's a big project for anyone to get into. I really like what you said. Like, just like start small. You don't need to do like a hundred yeah. first month if you haven't done this before. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you won't be able to do it. You you'll just get lost, and it doesn't make sense to spend so much money because content is expensive. You know, even when you you know don't hire in the U.S., you're still spending so much money. And if you are, you might as well spend it in a good way, like a smart way, mm. <laughs> set your foundation and, you know, just start working with a couple of people. And before you know it, you're scaling. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Okay. So something actually I ask everything, everyone before the end of each podcast. Firstly, is there anything that I've missed, like that people need to know to be a success to do this properly? I mean, no, I think we covered pretty much everything, right? Mm. I think that's it. We can talk about this for four more hours, honestly, and we would probably not cover everything, but the foundation is there, you know, just do good work, document it, and then distribute it. That's kind of our philosophy, uh, the three Ds, which yes. <laughs> so wrong, but it's true. <laughs> it is definitely true. Like you, first of all, everything, if you're starting out, everything first has to come from you. You have to document everything that you're doing. And yep. then you have to delegate that because if you're a business owner, you know, you don't have time to write content. You don't have time to edit content. You have to go out. You have to make money, you know, hire a good team, hire a team that cares about your projects and about your processes. And finally, you know, distribute that. The sooner you publish, the sooner it's going to rank. But don't start with 100 pages a month. Start a little bit lower. <laughs> Perfect. That's a great answer. You also answered my other question there, was, which was going to be like, what's the like three important things for success? But those Ds are, yeah. are pretty good. They the get Ds, it. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Like, where can people find you? So what's the name of your company, first of all? Workella. Workella. Yeah, it's uh, com. We have some pretty good content. If you want to read that or try it, I would love to have you. I also run customer success at Workella, so you'll definitely talk to me. Uh, <laughs> we also have a Facebook group. It's called Fat Graph Content Ops. Very interesting name. We like fat graphs. We also like content ops there. We have about 7,000 people. So definitely join. You can find us on YouTube under content distribution. And you can find me on LinkedIn, which I will, I don't know, I'll send you the link if you can maybe I'll, put it somewhere. I'll probably link to you in the article, obviously, like say like, who's the oh, guest? Yeah, so they'll find you there. Yeah, yeah. But let's be friends, you know, let's talk content. I'm always, you know, honestly, I love connecting with people because I just truly always want to learn more. So yeah, let's be friends. I love it. I'm, I'm loving this, this community of like people massively working on SEO. Like the more I've focused this podcast on SEO, the more I've found how many passionate people there are about this this stuff yeah it's crazy i didn't even know i i when i started working with nick i was like what like people care about this stuff yeah. <laughs> really they really do it's amazing i'm just whenever i see these because people post in our group they're kind of mini case studies of what they did like they did a really good content sprint and they share their gra their graphs or i don't know they did this or that I was like, oh my God, like you guys are doing such amazing things. Like I'm jealous, you know, it's crazy, crazy what they do. So it's a really so good great. community. Yeah. I think I am in it, but I don't use Facebook. That's my problem. 
I don't use Facebook for anything except for the group. Honestly, yeah. I hate Facebook. So it's good my for least group. favorite thing. Yeah. Just for groups. Yeah. Everything else, <laughs> not great. Mess- <laughs> my friends also use the messenger. That's all, all I do. Yeah. I don't, I don't use the messenger either. <laughs> yeah. Last time I, last time I looked, logged onto Facebook, it's like my mom posted a picture and I was like, and then there was like six, yeah. six adverts and I was just like, no. Yeah. <laughs> same. That's why I don't scroll the, the news feed. No. There are a couple of groups I like. Obviously, one of them is the serious stuff, the you know, the SEO stuff, but there are some funny groups out there. And mm. honestly, that's the only reason why I go on Facebook. <laughs> my favorite one is my local town. It's like 30,000 people where I grew up, and they have the town group, you know, and it's entertaining because people just like fighting in there, like, who did this thing? And like, <laughs> so all my friends screenshot it and post to each other like oh my god <laughs> oh my god that's so funny i love those i wish i had one of those here but the belgrade group is so toxic because everyone everyone just talks about rent prices and then ju- they just um, fight in the comments yeah, yeah. Um, i wish we had one <laughs> that would be so <laughs> i'm sure it's the same i don't look at it too much yeah uh, thank you so much it's been really fun talking to you and yeah awesome thank thanks so much thank you for having me i'm so excited and yeah, I, I really love what you do here. So I was very happy that you invited me. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the How the Fuck podcast. If you're new to the show, I want to take a second to tell you the 411. Uh, at its heart, the mission of this podcast is to teach people how to grow their business with SEO. Standard. Lots of revenue results, the kind that make you go like, damn, I want some of that, typically come from really fast traffic traffic growth i mean in some way you've got to get there you've got to match these people have been there for like 10 years growing their traffic steadily and if you want to really face up to those guys get a ton of data on which content convert start learning get your top of funnel leads start creating demand get your middle and bottom of funnel content ranking and capturing demand you to make all that happen you need content and you know, to be honest, most people don't have the the team in place to make like 500 articles a quarter or 100 uh, a month or, or all of that kind of stuff in-house. Like hardly anyone has that. But that doesn't mean that you can't get to the point where you are producing 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 articles, even with a really small content team. Um, the, the thing you have to learn is about content operations Um, and optimizing and creating efficiencies in your process, which is exactly really what this community is dedicated to. So we hear stories about how people have done it, extraordinary results from people we think need listening to, their tips, techniques, what they're doing, what they're implementing right now to win in search. Um, And the podcast is one thing, it's core, and the inspirational stories and advice are just like so great to hear. It's really fun and exciting. Um, But what most people don't know is that there is a community attached to this podcast. There's a newsletter with extra tips, but the real hot source, so to speak, is uh, is How The Fuck Premium. So what I'm trying to build over the next few months, and you'll see if you follow along, is um, what you're already getting there is the case study teardown. So we go much deeper than this podcast to really explain the strategies that really work and why they work. But on top of that, over the next few months, you can expect to get a ton of stuff on content operations, like how to hire writers at scale, what briefs to use, uh, examples of SOPs that I use and other people use, um, how literally a one or two person team can scale uh, 
their content ops to 25 or even 100 blog posts a month if if they have an efficient process that empowers everybody involved in it. Um, other stuff that I plan to touch on is like more in programmatic SEO. Like we have a few case studies on programmatic and how you can get set up. But like really specifically, I want to get into how to actually do that, how to what the tools that you need, um, platforms that you can use and all this stuff to actually do it yourself. Um, and you don't need to rely on like huge tech teams. Like I've done programmatic SEO myself and you can use like no code tools. It's like not a problem, but I just, so I want to actually like teach those things. And honestly, the possibilities are endless with this kind of stuff. Um, but I think everyone is using a very different, a different method for content operations, but I want to bring like some best practices and, and just share with you like what other people are doing, what I'm doing, um, and what I think are, are some really awesome ways to approach this. So that's what you can expect in the premium community. Um, the podcast is like awesome inspiration and we get loads of good tips from it. But I think really get involved in the, in the whole community and that's how you can at least have a support guide and loads of improvement tips as you build out your own content operation. Cool, that is a four-on-one. That was pretty long. Um, anyway, I hope you have a great day. I hope you really enjoy this episode and uh, I'll see you next week. Thank you.